We've been talking for literally years now about how the Mexican airline market is going through a tough time. And unfortunately, it remains tough despite some impressive growth figures. You heard that correctly. This terrible market is growing. We reported in Airline Weekly that passenger volume was up 8% through the first three quarters. So why can't Mexican airlines make any money? It's because they're growing too fast. Ah, mystery solved. End of show. (laughs) Actually, I have more questions. Why are they growing so fast? Uh, The situation has been years in the making. I'm Jason Cottrell, one of the founding partners of Airline Weekly, and joining me is airline industry answer man, (laughs) Seth Kaplan, another founding partner of Airline Weekly. In addition to the Mexican airline market, we're going to talk about the huge drop in oil prices. Also, EasyJet is making nice margins right now, but are they nice enough? Latam is doing just fine despite some serious headwinds. AirAsia X is not doing fine. Neither is Flybe. Is a merger in its future. We'll discuss in the Airline Weekly Lounge. I know we opened the show in Mexico, but first I want to talk about the biggest story in the past couple months. Oil prices have dropped from about $76 to around $50. That's significant, to put it mildly. Seth, can you describe the impact at all? Yeah, and of course, what matters most to airlines is the cost of jet fuel, not not of crude oil. Jet fuel prices haven't dropped quite as much proportionally as as, as crude oil prices, but they've dropped significantly. And the difference between where they were recently is a month and a half ago and where they are now basically goes straight into the pocket of airlines. It flows straight to their bottom lines. It is hugely helpful for for almost every airline. Uh, Now, look, in the medium and long term, some of this uh, gets mitigated by the fact that airlines typically tend to start growing again. Uh, when oil is cheaper, uh, and then you get supply and demand economics come into play, uh, that greater supply pushes down airfares. Now, it's not because they're stupid. Um, you know, there are reasons to grow more quickly when fuel is cheap. It becomes more of a fixed cost industry again, where hey, you already paid for the airplane, you're already you know paying a lot of, of what you have to pay your people. If fuel is cost, might as well keep the airline the airplane in the air more hours a day. It could be perfectly rational, but that does push down airfares eventually. But at the moment, what you have is capacity or supply that was planned back when fuel was expensive. You have people flying around on airline tickets that they bought back when fuel was expensive and when everything was priced accordingly. And yet uh, you have these cheap fuel prices. And so airlines kind of get to live with one foot in both worlds with the big revenue uh, world. you know, certainly uh, for for U.S. airlines, but also for for a lot around the world. The, you know, every airline with transatlantic exposure, almost every airline anyway, with transatlantic exposure, and uh, and others that are experiencing some strength, they get to benefit from that revenue environment uh, that was basically tied to expensive uh, jet fuel prices, and yet the cost environment that actually exists today, and that almost nobody saw coming, at least to to the degree. Uh, that things have changed now. The impact does vary by airline. They're not all enjoying it, each one as much as every other one. Uh, but industry-wide, uh, I, I think we're going to see some uh, some really eye-popping 
profitability figures uh, for the fourth quarter when those figures begin to emerge early uh, 2019. As you mentioned, cheap fuel helps just about every airline, but it doesn't help them all equally. So let's play a little game. I'll say an airline and you tell us how you imagine that airline in particular views the plunge in oil prices. Let's start with Southwest. Southwest is, is a mixed bag. I mean, unequivocally good. Uh, you know, Southwest also trades in U.S. dollars, so it doesn't have foreign currency issues that sort of can 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 uh, negate part of the benefit of cheap fuel. You know, if if uh, you know fuel in U.S. dollar terms is a lot cheaper, but your currency is also dropped, those sorts of things that affect some airlines around the world. Southwest is you know is unexposed to that, but it does unusually among U.S. airlines at this point, have an active hedging program. Uh, so what that means, because it, it still actively hedges jet fuel, something that's common around the world but has become rather uncommon in the U.S., that means that back when fuel was rather expensive, uh, that left Southwest in, in a relatively good spot. You know, It was, it was paying less for fuel uh, than some of its competitors. But now that fuel has dropped in cost, it doesn't get the full benefit uh, of that drop because you know it essentially, uh, you know, paid for insurance for something it now doesn't need to lay a claim to let's say uh uh you know whereas other airlines in the u.s at this point it's very different from how things were uh, a decade ago are, are for the most part unhedged so southwest happy to see jet fuel prices dropping but you know if you go and look at a at a chart of, of share prices for u.s airlines and you see southwest not uh spiking as much as some of its competitors uh, recently that's probably an important reason why american airlines well, americans on the other side of what i just said american is completely unhedged and american's management team is actually the one that that sort of started that trend uh, back when they were at U.S. Airways. Oh, uh, what are coming up on you know a decade now since you had the fuel spike and then the uh, fuel market collapse, and they basically threw up their hands going into 2009 and said, you know, we're we're an airline, not a not a hedge fund, and uh, we've just spent way too much money uh, over the years, you know, trying to mitigate this risk, and and in the end, we just we just don't think it uh, it makes sense. We'd rather just sort of accept fuel prices wherever they are and adjust in other ways, you know, through capacity moves and the rest of it. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they recognized that when fuel is on its way up quickly, that that might not be a good thing. But they thought over the long term that they would save a lot more by not hedging uh, than than they would lose. And and it kind of seemed to be the case for enough years in every kind of environment going up and down uh, that uh, that eventually its competitors and of course U.S. Airways then became part of American and American adopted this philosophy. Uh, you know, Delta and United kind of kind of came around to to feel the same way. So American, you know, when you see fuel prices dropping, uh, American gets the full benefit of that, uh, really as much as any airline uh, in in the world. Etihad. Yeah, that's one where look, uh, it's happy to pay less to put fuel in into its its airplanes today. I mean, that's the immediate impact when fuel prices drop. Uh, it's it's just a great cost story for uh, for almost every airline. I mean, the only the only way the only exception could be if somehow your currency was falling by more than. Uh, jet fuel prices, but generally speaking, you know, in a cost sense, it's great news for almost everybody. Um, but Etihad is one where you know the revenue environment. This is an airline that's that's clearly been struggling. The revenue environment, much more of a mixed picture, and and there's going to be downward pressure uh, it, it, when you're when you're an Abu Dhabi based airline. Uh, now, look, most of their revenue isn't coming from the local market. 
but uh, still enough of the business they do uh, relate to has the economy doing in 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 the broader uh, in in the broader region in in the Arabian Gulf and beyond and, and look you know less money is flowing into into that part of the world when oil prices are cheap uh so on a net basis they're probably happy to see uh cheaper fuel because you know that's sort of the quick and certain impact is uh the impact on costs but uh but yeah mo- uh, much more of a mixed story for them than it is for let's say an airline like American. And by the way, I should say this. You know, I mentioned how it's, how it's good for uh, you know Delta and United too. United is one where the offsetting uh, impact, and this is, you know, this is a good thing when fuel prices go up and a bad thing when fuel prices go down. Is that United has all this exposure to the Houston market? They have a big hub in Houston uh, where there's a revenue benefit at least when fuel is expensive. Uh, now that said, look, Jason. I mean, it's it's you know j- cheap fuel impacts their you know it's good for the whole airline, whereas expensive fuel is you know is good for one hub. So I'm not saying United doesn't isn't happy about what's happening. They most certainly are, uh, but they sort of have that that little bit of a hedge. They're not an Arabian Gulf airline, but um, but sort of more revenue exposure to to oil prices as well as cost exposure. Norwegian. Great news for them overall. Now they're one. I mean, look, domestic Norway. You know, it's, that's a petro economy, uh, and 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 uh, when fuel prices are down, um, that can't be good for for some of those markets. The good thing or the bad thing, we're Norwegian, but it's mostly a bad thing, is that of course domestic Norway isn't most of what the airline does anymore. They have all these transatlantic routes that are just just all kinds of other. Uh, growth that they've undertaken, you know. So, so, so again, if you're sort of saying what's the immediate impact here, the immediate impact is that this is a lifeline for Norwe- Norwegian. I mean, this is an airline that's that's struggling, and all of a sudden their costs are just automatically kind of getting slashed. And so, if you're them, yes, you you see what's going on. I'm sure uh, with with domestic markets, maybe some revenue pressure there as less probably less money flows into the uh, Norwegian domestic economy, but you're glad if you're them. And don't be surprised, Jason, if you see here, you know, there was sort of that, that's that uh, series of, of bankruptcies. You know, obviously, Air Berlin was last year before the, the big spike, but then you know, you know, Primera and, and uh, uh, you know, which followed Monarch would feel on its way up, not at its peaks, but Primera, Cobalt, uh, and some other smaller ones. Um, very recently, you know, don't be surprised if that trend kind of slows down. You know, if you don't suddenly see more airlines going out of business, because this is a lifeline for for struggling airlines. Uh, Norwegian, you know, probably wasn't really on the brink yet of liquidating because it just has some furniture it could burn. You know, assets to sell off, a lot of aircraft and so forth. Uh, but but an airline who you know they couldn't keep going on the way things were for very long, losing the kind of money they're losing. Um, and yeah, don't be surprised if the fourth quarter for them, uh, you know, if finally their margins improve, they're not going to be good. But if finally you see some 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 real notable year over year improvement, in their case, it would be, you know, less severe loss margins, not profits, but but uh, for the first time in, in in many quarters. Spirit. Yeah, they're they're one where it, it'll it'll cut both ways, uh, probably if 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 fuel prices stay where they are. Now things have changed at Spirit. Spirit is is doing rather well right now. They actually put out a a, um, a very bullish investor update uh, just this week talking about revenue. I mean, that didn't even take into account what's going on, most certainly with with costs because of cheap fuel. They were just saying that all their you know moves that they've made, uh, you know, 
Yeah, you know, in terms of their their network, uh, in terms of more dynamic scheduling, you know, seasonal scheduling, uh, revenue managing their ancillary revenues, which is very important for them because it's a very big percentage of their revenue is ancillary. Uh, and all that, basically, that's all going very, very well for Spirit before you even start talking about what's going on for with costs. So this is an airline that I would not be surprised at all to see a very, very good fourth quarter. Now, the one thing that you uh, do have to worry about if you're Spirit uh, is what we saw last time fuel prices plummeted, which was that you know for an airline that still is you know let's face it a a, a low fare focused airline an airline that differentiates itself on cost more on, on the cost of, of flying for for the public more than anything else you know for them when prevailing airfares fall as as I suspect is going to happen here at some point over the next year or so, if fuel prices stay stay low, that puts some pressure on Spirit because it's it's harder for them to differentiate themselves in that way. Now, what they've what they've tried to do, and you know, in fits and starts. I mean, and I should say that that recent improvement follows a couple of you know rather tough years there where they've spent a lot of money trying to turn things around without necessarily having the real results to show it to show for it, but. You know, they they feel like they've done some things now where they hope that people don't only fly Spirit because it's cheap. Because when people only fly Spirit because it's cheap, and when Spirit isn't that much cheaper than other airlines, which just kind of happens by definition. I mean, there's there's you know when everybody's cheap, it's 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 hard to be a lot cheaper than cheap. You know that last time did put pressure on them. Uh, this time we'll see if they've you know if these steps that they've taken in some cases rather expensively pay off in in a in a cheap fuel environment. The immediate impact is is unquestionably good. Let's see what happens if 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 you know suddenly we're we're getting falling airfares and uh, it's just really cheap to fly JetBlue again or really cheap to fly other airlines, uh, you know Delta and others that have sort of. Um, Alaska, the airlines that, that 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 have established themselves in ways other than you know just being cheap airlines that have uh, that have better um, uh, service reputations. Jet Airways, good news for them. Uh, you, you know, India is not a petro economy. Um, you know, it, it's it's a country. If you look at sort of the big emerging markets, the BRICS, uh, as, as as they're known, of course, uh, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, Brazil, you know, more of a commodity market. Uh, Russia, obviously, um, India and China both aren't, and yet India. When you look at what happens with their currency, all the rest of it, you know, India likes uh, cheap oil as an economy, and Jet Airways as an airline in India, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, they're they're one that as much as anybody, uh, the the cost story, the good cost story here is going to um, carry a lot more weight than any uh, negative impact on revenue. And if you're Jet Airways, that's really important because this is an airline that uh, that 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 has been uh, struggling. Good news, uh, you know, almost without qualification. Good news for Jet Airways. Okay, last one, Volaris. Uh, so you know, this is a Mexican airline, um, and Mexico is a petro economy. Uh, so it's one of those places where you know you, you could have some some downward pressure, uh, you know, from a revenue sense if you have less money flowing into the uh, the Mexican economy. Still, though, um, an airline like Volaris really depends on a lot of price sensitive travelers. You know, what this does uh, in, in a cost sense has to be good for them. Don't forget also that, you know, you know, cheap oil, cheap fuel, um, you know, among price sensitive travelers, um, it does 
you know, so in some places, obviously the Arabian Gulf and any place with oil exposure, um, you know, it's bad in terms of corporate travel spending from you know companies that depend on oil being expensive. Um, but it but it puts money into the pockets of consumers, um, you know, people who drive cars, and it becomes cheaper to, to to fill up their cars with gasoline with petrol. It's uh, you know it's it's good for them. So uh, yeah, I think if you're Volaris and you're dealing just with the uh, with the kinds of really rough margins they've been dealing with um you'll you'll take this immediate benefit of fuel being cheaper and you know and deal with with uh with any of the other uh, uh consequences in the broader mexican economy okay we'll stay with mexico a little longer in the third quarter volaris posted a three percent operating margin aeromexico was just one percent interjets was negative 16 percent Viva Aerobus was the only respectable one at 9%. These are lousy numbers for what's supposed to be the peak quarter. Seth, how can traffic be up? And we're talking about actual passengers, not just seats. Yet these airlines seem to be doing worse. Yeah, well, kind of because traffic is up. Uh, now, not not strictly. I mean, you're right. Sure, it'd be even worse if you had empty seats, right? But you know, the point is that traffic typically varies roughly in proportion to capacity, right? I mean, typically, if airlines are growing, and there are more seats out there, they're going to find a way to, uh, you know, to put people in those seats doesn't mean they're going to find a way to put people in those seats profitably. Uh, and I and uh, Jason, look, in, in my life, I, I hear it all the time, right? People, you know, just just friends and family say, Oh, I was on this flight, it was packed, or, you know, or I fly all the time, and flights are so full now, airlines must be making so much money. And it's uh you know it's just a basic fact of uh, of of airline economics historically that full planes do not equate uh, to profits. You can you can all, almost always find a way to fill an airplane. I, I realize there are exceptions you know, throughout history. Right after nine eleven, you, know, you could give away tickets, and, and there were a lot of people that didn't want to fly. But typically, you know, if, if the if the fare is low enough, people are going to fly. But it doesn't mean that uh, those passengers are are profitable for airlines. And so that's kind of what's happened here. Is that uh, for Mexican Airlines? Look, yeah, if the supply is out there, I mean that's the way airline economics works. Um, an empty seat is spoilage uh, from an airline perspective. L- literally, just the way that you know the term is the same as uh, you know a bakery that bakes too much bread, and at the end of the day, uh, you know if they're going to have to throw that bread away, uh, well, I mean, hey, discount it uh, half off, get something for it rather than just throw it away. And that's what it is when airlines have to deeply discount seats. Uh, they get something rather than nothing. Uh, and if you're especially one of those LCCs in Mexico, or especially the sort of the more ultra LCC types like Volaris, like uh, Viva Aerobus, you can make a lot of money from ancillaries. Hey, even if you have to let the person on the plane for practically nothing, maybe they'll buy something else from you. It can be perfectly rational once you're stuck with that extra capacity, but you'd sure rather not have excess capacity uh, to, to to begin with, which is rather clearly what Mexico has right now. Okay. They have excess capacity, yet the airlines keep growing. Aeromexico is growing around 7%, while Volaris, Viva, and Interjet are growing at a double-digit clip. Why are they growing so much? Because they have so many new airplanes coming in, uh, you know, these big fleet orders, and the airplanes show up, and then you have to do something with them, and you have some flexibility, you know, in terms of retiring older planes if you have those, uh, you know, more quickly than you planned, and all that. But, um, but you know, when you have um, you know, the, the, the big order book and airplanes coming in, you, you know, the the inertia is going to be to to grow, and you know, and 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 even in, even in terms of retirements, what you have there with a lot of these airlines is. 
upgaging, right? So in some cases, they're replacing older planes with newer ones that are as big as an A321neo, you know, with with uh, with more than 200 people on board. So even if you retire old planes at a one for one ratio, uh, just the fact that the new planes are, are so much bigger that too puts uh, upward pressure on on, uh, on on capacity, and so so that's really what it is. It would take something a lot more active for these airlines to not grow. You know, in terms of how do they do that than to grow. Uh, growth is kind of the, the base case scenario right now for uh, for Mexico's airlines and it's uh, not doing happy things to, to their uh, to their unit revenues or ultimately to their profits. Why is Viva, which has a 9% operating margin in the last quarter, why are they doing so much better than Interjet and Volaris? Yeah. Uh, so t- kind of taking those separately, you know, the reason they're doing so much better in Interjet, I think, is that they just have a better business model. Interjet always had the most... It was kind of always the strategically most questionable airline. You know, you had Viva Aerobus backed by sort of one of the very successful ultra LCC, you know, lineages in the world. They're actually not a part of that. They're separately owned now. Uh, initially, were owned by kind of, you know, Ryan family money and, and, and so forth. Um, uh, Volaris backed by the other... It's uh, Indigo Partners, the same ones that are behind you, know, Frontier now, and Wizz Air, you know, and others they, you know, did the spirit turnaround, all that. And Interjet was not uh, part of that. And they, they wanted to be this kind of upmarket, uh, short haul LCC. They wanted to be the JetBlue of, of Mexico. And, you know, that can work. I mean, you know, JetBlue, of course, well, as a new entrant, was one of the most successful new airlines ever. And, and uh, yeah, it's still a perfectly, perfectly sustainable airline, even, even with some challenges. But you know, here you're in a in a, a price sensitive market where you know the universe of people willing to pay a lot more on a on a short flight for a lot more legroom throughout the whole cabin. You know, not just selling extra legroom seats, but the whole thing. You know, so so you're going to pay a fill a plane with people who are going to pay you a lot more because of that, and and you need them to because if you're going if you're going to have a low density aircraft, right, you need to get more from everybody, and you're going to just sort of bundle the whole product more. Eh, that was always tough. And then you go out and order a bunch of Russian super jets, you know, SSJ 100s, one of the only airlines sort of out of Russia's sphere of influence to do that. You know, they might have, I mean, hey, I guess it could have worked out differently and they were onto something that nobody else uh, saw, but it didn't work out the way. They had all kinds of operational problems. Or, you know, they, have a, they have an airplane that's kind of hard to support because, you know, harder to get you know just parts and maintenance and all the rest of it when you have an airplane that not many other uh, basically nobody else in your hemisphere uh, has and on and on so interjet was always the one where you kind of looked at them and and you know hey you might have rooted for them to prove you wrong but the 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 onus was always on them volaris is is the more interesting uh comparison because you know all those things they said are not true of Volaris. you look at them and they look a lot like uh, all the successful lccs around the world and so you know what is it uh, well, one thing is, uh, so Viva Aerobus is is is, is considerably smaller uh, than Volaris. They're like a little more than half the size of Volaris. But at congested Mexico City, uh, the main airport there, Viva actually has has um, relatively more of a concentration. Volaris is a bit bigger there. Looking at looking at do my schedule data here, but Volaris is. You know, even though they're only a little half as big as an airline, they have nearly as much uh, capacity in Mexico City. So that's good. And then you just have the fact that because um, it's a lot smaller, so in this market where everybody's kind of growing and looking for, you know, what do I do? Where do I grow profitably in a, in a tough market? I mean, Volaris, you know, just kind of has to 
push even more into more marginal markets because they're bigger, right? So Viva can just kind of skim the the, the top tier of markets. And Volaris, because uh, they have more airplanes and they need to grow, um, they have to push into the more marginal markets. And so, you know, that's probably uh, uh, an important part of, of the explanation. I mean, we'll have to see here going forward if it continues, if there continues to be this, this kind of big disparity that we've seen lately between those two, or if it's just one of these things where, you know, Viva does come back to the pack, or I guess, <laughs> I guess from everybody else's perspective, you have to hope it was the other way around, right? The others kind of come up to, uh, to Viva's level. Um, but, but that, that is uh, kind of the, the, the rather interesting question there. Is there any hope for Interjet? Their numbers seem to be cratering. Yeah, well, uh, you know, fly uh, fly fewer SSJs, you know, uh, which 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 they're doing. Um, so you know, so there's that uh, cut costs, which they're doing. Um, you know, they've had some layoffs. You know, obviously tough for for uh, for the workforce. You know, I, I just think at some point here, you um just have to look more like other airlines that that are that are more profitable i mean densify the aircraft unbundle the product i know they think they're differentiating themselves because you know, well hey viva and Polaris are doing that so we're going to occupy a, a different part of the marketplace but the problem is that uh you know i'm just not sure that there's demand sufficient demand for what they're operating and so you know, you're probably better off copying what works even if it even if it doesn't seem too creative and even if it seems like there's a little too much of it then continuing to do something that doesn't work and, you know we've seen that around the world right we've seen that i mentioned JetBlue before i mean they were never in the spot that interjet is in uh, in terms of losses but you know as they've done things that they didn't really want to do you know charge for bags and now they're you know finally densifying the cabins a little bit you know usually when airlines start doing things that work for other airlines it works for them too um, and so that's probably, uh, aside from phasing out the SSJs, where, where the biggest uh, obvious opportunity for them is, is just start start acting more like a successful low-cost carrier. Okay. So EasyJet posted a six-month earnings report. From April through September, they notched a 16% operating margin. It's certainly not bad. In fact, it's solid. But for comparison, during the same period, Ryanair had a 27% margin and Wizair had a 22% margin. At 16%, is EasyJet underperforming? Well, I guess by definition, it's underperforming those two, right? Because uh, because its margins are lower. Um, but on the other hand, 16% look uh, higher than uh, higher than Lufthansa. 12% higher than Air France, KLM 10%. I'm giving, giving the six month numbers. I mean, those airlines report quarterly, but anyway, sort of doing apples to apples. Uh, a lot better than Norwegian, 5%. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's better off. And, and you, know, you go look around the world and it's better off than, uh, than a whole lot of other airlines around the world. IAG, by the way, uh, you know, among sort of British based companies, although IAG with exposure all around Europe, just like just like EasyJet has, uh, slightly better than EasyJet for that period at seventeen percent. Uh, so it's you know EasyJet's a perfectly sustainable airline, not putting up the the eye popping margins that those other two you mentioned, uh, Ryanair and Wiz, have put up. There was a time a few years ago where they sort of seemed to be nipping at uh, at Ryanair's heels, and um, and and then they kind of. They kind of fell back again a little bit as Ryanair, you know, took its own steps to uh, to improve, start appealing to you know business travelers a little more, and that 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 sort of thing. Uh, you know, now Ryanair sort of has, has 
again run upon a little bit of a rough patch, uh, bad operations, all these labor issues that that it's had as as its workforce rapidly unionizes. So you know, let's see if that gives EasyJet another opportunity to again close the gap. Uh, but a lot of what I just mentioned was already happening. You know, it's already baked into those second and third quarter numbers, and and uh, Ryanair still managed to put up that what was it? You said twenty seven percent uh that they that they did so um so a little hard to you know to picture easyjet completely uh closing the gap i mean they are a higher cost airline part of it's just more exposure to primary airports Ryanair's pushed more into primary airports than they used to but easyjet will probably forever be an airline more exposed to that uh so just a higher cost airline and when you have higher costs even if rather low cost compared to airlines around the world, but higher cost than Ryanair, higher cost certainly than Wizz Air as well. Um, you know, you got to go find the revenues to cover to cover that, right? You have higher costs, you got to have higher revenues. They do have higher you know, unit revenues, but um, but not enough of a differential. In other words, the, the cost gap is still bigger than the revenue gap, and that's where you get those somewhat lower margins than, uh, than, than its uh, low-cost competitors. You mentioned EasyJet's move to appeal to business travelers. Tell me about that. Is, is this a good idea? Yeah, when you have their network, you know, we're just sort of naturally you should appeal to to business travelers. It makes sense uh, to do, and they've done that for a while. I mean, that's not new for them. Ryanair, that's 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 a new concept for them. You know, the idea of, of trying to appeal to to business travelers. I, I say new over the past few years, anyway. Um, you know, EasyJet, they've for a long time. You know, there was you know, if you go back a decade, no self-respecting business traveler in. Uh, in Europe would fly Ryanair, but they would fly EasyJet. You know that that was kind of seen as 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 uh, as acceptable. Uh, you know they just they have a nice presence at primary airports. You know higher frequency schedules in a lot of markets. I mean that was part of the issue with Ryanair. In a lot of cases, they just wouldn't have appealed to business travelers because because their network didn't. Because you know business travelers don't want flights. You know just a few times a week in a market. Um, whereas EasyJet had more of more of that. The the uh, you know the good slots at the good airports and the the higher frequency schedule. So it always made sense for them to uh, to appeal to business travelers. And so then you know if you've got the network anyway and the schedules anyway, it makes sense to find low risk ways to say okay, how can we how can we be more tra- um, you know just more friendly to to business travelers? Just just do the little things. Um, you know without. Overhauling the airline very expensively, but the little things that should uh, that should appeal to those kinds of people, you know, loyalty programs and and uh, and all the rest of it. So, um, you know, I, I think they've done a good job of 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 looking for those opportunities. Um, anytime you can make little tweaks and have sort of outsized benefit uh, from those changes. Now, I know that the first rule of Flight Club is that you don't talk about Flight Club, <laughs> but I want to talk about. EasyJet's frequent flyer program, and that's what it's called. <laughs> How strong is EasyJet's frequent flyer program? And is having a strong loyalty program is that a rare thing for a truly low cost carrier? Well, it's it's a rare thing in Europe, um, but then again, it's it's you know even among legacy airlines, there's a big difference. I mean, it, it if you look around the world, there's nothing like the U.S. carriers in terms of loyalty programs. They are so much bigger. Uh, than anything else, you know, they were first, and they still, all these decades later, was American Advantage was what, 19, I think 81, right? So whatever it is, 37 years ago, all these years later, no, no other region has caught up. China, China's airlines have actually rather robust loyalty programs. I mean, you got a you know, billion and a half people in the country, so so uh, you know that that helps, and they're still not as big, but they're getting there. But yeah, European programs are still considerably smaller, and there are reasons for that. I mean, it's not just because 
you know, they're, they're not trying or something. It's, it's, it's a more fragmented marketplace. And, and, uh, uh, anyway, there's just, 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 you know, explanations for it. But that said, those legacy programs are also a lot smaller. In the U.S., uh, most of the low-cost carriers have robust loyalty programs. I mean, the one exception really is Allegiant, uh, which is getting more into that world, but you know, they, don't, they don't mainly do it. But the others is all, are all have have rather robust loyalty programs. You know, that wasn't the case in Europe, and now now we see EasyJet getting more into it. I mean, it, it has always seemed to make sense, uh, you know, as long as you do it in a way that's that's uh that's profitable i uh, i mean so in the u.s even you know, spirit airlines has a rather robust loyalty program and, and i remember years back interviewing um ben baldanza when he was ceo at spirit um this goes back to early this decade just sort of asking at the time you know, why do you have a loyalty program I mean, it's an airline people just fly because it's cheap and as long as it's cheap they're gonna fly it right and he said, he said it was very simple he said uh he said you know we have a loyalty program because it's profitable and if, if and if it wasn't profitable we wouldn't have it it was in an interview we published in airline weekly uh way back and, and so so and and that kind of seems to be the case for an airline like easyjet there should be a way um it's not just about loyalty it's about all the other things that we We've discussed at times on the show, make a loyalty program profitable. Obviously, all the partner sales, you know, selling miles to to everybody else, and the co-branded credit cards, and and the rest of it. And so, I, I think it's you know it, it's perfectly rational to get more into that. And EasyJet is pushing for so you know they've had this flight club where it's kind of invitation only kind of thing, just for truly very frequent flyers. But you know, there's there's such a thing as a loyal but infrequent flyer, and they can be some of the most profitable travelers of all. If you get somebody to spend, you know, tens of thousands of euros or dollars or pounds um, on on credit card every year, even if they never fly you, and and that credit card issuer is buying all those miles from you to award to that traveler uh, to do all kinds of other profitable things, and then to prefer your airline when they do fly, even if it's just once or twice a year, to spend a little more, to do something you know less convenient, go out of their way to fly your airline, you know, why not why not do it? And that's more of what we're we're starting to see in, in Europe among the low cost carriers and uh, EasyJet rather clearly recognizes that. Let's turn our attention to South America. LATAM posted its Q3 results. This is an off-peak quarter in that region. Also, the economies in Brazil and Argentina have been weak. Because of these things, I was expecting their results to be lousy, but they weren't. 7% operating margin. What is working for Latam? Look, some, some bad news is good news. Um, I'm talking with the currency issues, one thing is that uh, that their labor costs were way down. I mean, twenty three percent. You know why is that? Well, okay, Latam reports in U.S. dollars, so uh, obviously, you know, when fuel is expensive, that's, that's you know, I mean, they deal with that just like everybody else. But um, and in local currency terms. Your currency is dropping and dollar denominated fuel is going up. That's bad. And that's during that quarter. I mean, that's 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 what was happening. Um, So that was all bad. But um, when your currency is down, but you're paying people in that weak currency, guess what happens? Your labor costs decline 23 percent in U.S. dollar terms. Uh, And and that's indeed um, what happened there. Um, And even some of the rough markets that they serve, you know, Brazil, of course, the economy there is still bad, but guess what? Capacity uh, is 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 constrained. Um, and some Brazilians who aren't traveling internationally are traveling domestically. And, and Latam has, has a fair amount of uh, domestic capacity. Uh, cargo, which is uh, rather important for Latam, uh, uh, doing well. By the way, less important for merged Latam these past several years than it was just for LAN when you know, LAN was was 
uh, you know, based in Chile, had operations in other places, but uh, cargo is very, very important in Chile. It, it's, uh, you know, for the, it was like 20 something percent of company revenues, if I remember correctly. Now it's 11% of the merged company's revenues, but still, you know, it's more important than it is for, let's say, uh, like a US airline. Uh, or for a lot of European airlines, uh, labor productivity is improving. Uh, aircraft utilization is up, but so they're just sort of taking a lot of steps. They have sort of a low cost business model and short haul markets. Um, simple product, densify the cabins, all that. Um, and so yeah, just just uh, a lot still going right there in an airline that's that's navigating uh, a, a challenging environment rather well. So we saw good news from LATAM. It was all bad news from AirAsia X. They reported a loss in their Q3, which is also an off-peak quarter. But the eye-popping number is a negative 19% operating profit margin. That's down from a negative 3% the year before. What's troubling AirAsia X? Well, you know, kind of like what I said earlier about Interjet, right? You just, just the, you, you start with the business model. Um, so just like short haul up market LCC is just kind of a tough thing to start with before you get into kind of the, the nitty gritty low cost long haul. Uh, you know, we could probably save time, Jason, just replay some other, you know, show uh, from, from over the years here, just talking about how low cost long haul is a, is a tough business model. So that's, that's the starting point. You know, they've all, they've been, they've been at this, what I think like they started about 2007, you know, I mean, over a decade here, they've been at, at this, Trying to do something that's that's really tough to do, and so and you can look at some specific markets. I mean, they got out of Tehran, uh, Iran, so so that was clearly wasn't working. Cutting frequencies to Beijing, Osaka, uh, places throughout Australia. Obviously, that wasn't working. They're about to leave Auckland. I mean, you could tell that there are markets that that haven't worked. The decline in Chinese tourism to Thailand. So there's a Thai Air Asia X affiliate that that was down. Uh, Indonesia Airways X, uh, by the way, put up a negative twenty percent, negative twenty seven percent operating margin. Uh, so that's and that that operation is actually going away soon in terms of scheduled flying. So that should help. Um, so there, there are a lot of details that you can uh, that you can look at. They're going to go get into sh- sort of shorter haul uh, flying in you know, five to eight hours, where yeah, you need a wide body for a lot of the flights, but you're not not sort of in those sort of eight to twelve hour markets but yeah it's an airline that you know, there have been times when they seemed to be getting their heads above water but overall just a tough business model they're trying to do something that uh almost nobody around the world has ever made money doing and uh they're not having any more luck than than most other we've, we've talked about the few exceptions you know, Jetstar, perhaps air canada rouge you know, perhaps doing okay and so forth but but uh Generally speaking, I, I, you know, when you look at that business model, the, the much bigger surprise would have been if they were doing well uh, rather than, uh, than than not doing well. And this, after all, an airline affiliated with what's been a, a very successful short-haul uh, low-cost carrier over the years, AirAsia. But once you push out the stage lengths and get into wide-body, you know, twin-aisle flying, it, it's a whole different game and a more difficult one. The Flybe sweepstakes are underway. Flybe, the troubled UK short-haul carrier, is rumored to be sought after by Virgin Atlantic, IAG, Seth Kaplan, (laughs) maybe even EasyJet. The airline is clearly struggling. What's wrong with Flybe? Yeah, well, that's the problem, right? That that I might be able to... I can't buy them, but but, uh, but somebody... But too many people probably could uh, who have to, who have a little more money. It, it's it's I mean it's a lot of things, and, and this is an airline. It's not one of those necessarily that you would look at, kind of like what you say, you know, Internet or, or 
AirAsia X and be like, what are they doing? I mean, this is an airline that that you know is set up to appeal to business travelers, kind of high frequency, a lot of domestic UK flying, also some European flying UK to Europe, some flying within Europe, not touching the UK uh, over the years. Well, it's a number of things. Look, first of all, they fly sort of you know smaller aircraft. Uh, they they don't fly full-size uh, narrow bodies. So then you're already kind of trying to thread the needle. When you're flying smaller aircraft, that means higher unit cost aircraft than an airline, let's say like EasyJet or, you know, or, or, you know somebody like that. So you need to get revenue premiums to make up for, for, your, for your, your cost disadvantages. And, you know, it's not easy to do. And, and you're going to have to find markets that those airlines are ignoring. And it's not an unlimited universe of markets that are sort of just too small for EasyJet. I'm saying EasyJet. It could be Ryanair. It could be others. Uh, yeah, just too small for EasyJet, but just perfect for, for Flybe and have the market all to themselves. There are markets like those, but it's it's not an unlimited universe of, of, uh, of markets. So yeah, just kind of always trying to to thread the needle there, and they've done a lot of things over the years to to try, you know, do more of the uh, sort of the the flying under contract, like uh, very big business in 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 uh, in North America airlines, you know, contracted to fly, um, you know, capacity purchase purchase agreements as they're called, to fly for larger airlines, and they do that for SAS and and others but uh, you know yeah it, it just has never they've never managed to um to uh to, to to turn the corner you know another one where at times they've kind of done okay but but never never do well enough in the good times to make up for what happens in in the bad times and so uh so yeah here here they are again um in in, in this uh in this spot and, and we'll see if any of those parties that you mentioned not Seth Kaplan, but uh, you know whether it's Virgin or EasyJet or somebody else can manage to uh, yeah to, to get a hold of them. So for those parties interested in Flybe, what can the ghost of Little Red tell them about purchasing it? Yeah, Little Red was that short haul unit uh, that Virgin Atlantic operated years ago. Um, they, they actually paid Aer Lingus to do uh, some flying under contract for them, and it, it just ended up being this really expensive way to try to feed. Uh, their long haul flights, and that, that was the idea. Like, oh well, if we bring a narrow body uh, down from I don't know Edinburgh, Glasgow, you know, places they were flying into London, and uh, and feed the um, the uh, the long haul flights. Um, it's it's good, obviously, it's just more traffic for long haul flights. But it just ended up being, uh, well, it was it's called Little Red, but in terms of the uh, the you know the the profit and loss statements, it was it was big red basically um very very expensive so if you're gonna get into that game you know you have to be careful virgin atlantic now trying to get into a joint venture with you know delta and air france klm you know you'd sort of if you're them you have to say okay how you know how worthwhile is that um versus just letting some of that traffic flow over um you know if you're if you're at a sort of a secondary UK city where there might be a flight to Paris or to Amsterdam, but not to London um, that can feed Virgin Atlantic. How much of that you just, okay, fine, let it flow over those hubs and get some of the same benefit too. But a lot of it's always going to come down to what's the price, right? So in the case of Little Red, that was just too expensive, uh, what they were trying to do. You know, if Flybe, I guess if they could feel like they can get it at the right price, 
it, it could make sense. You know, EasyJet, it's, you know, it'd be consolidation right now. Flybe is a, a competitor and it's always helpful to, to not um, have to compete against them. Uh, there's also a slot portfolio at, at, uh, at some, some important airports. And so, um, you know, so if you're any of those other airlines, you know, you're, you're thinking that, um, you know, that maybe you can make better use of, of the slots. I mean, you mentioned IAG. I mean, they've, obviously done that over the years when they bought you know bmi for example that was all about the slot portfolio uh in in uh in that case so uh so yeah they have some interesting assets they have they have an interesting business uh just not one that has been able to make any consistent uh money on 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 its own okay when you have airlines speaking to you from beyond the grave you know it's time for last call. <laughs> so we'll wrap episode 110 right there. As always, if you like the show, share it with your colleagues. They can subscribe to the Airline Weekly Lounge through iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever they get their podcasts. They can also subscribe at airlineweekly.com. For Seth Kaplan, I'm Jason Cottrell. Thanks for spending some time with us. 